Good day, everybody. I'm George Selgin, the Director Emeritus of Cato's Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. And I'm very pleased to welcome all of you, both virtual and real attendees, to the Center's first live post-COVID event, Digital Currency, Public or Private. Uh, to our live attendees, to you, uh, a special word of thanks for your, your bravery and uh, your willingness to uh, help us return to normal here at Cato. And a reminder to please keep your masks on until we're having lunch upstairs after the session. When I first came to Cato, which is now over seven years ago, central bank digital currency, uh, which is to say digital retail payments media supplied by central banks, uh, <clears throat> was just an idea to the extent that central bankers took any notice of it at all, they mostly were not interested. Today, central bank digital currency is a thing. The People's Bank of China has been running digital renminbi trials since April, and just days ago, the Central Bank of Nigeria introduced its own digital currency, the Inera. Dozens of other central banks, including the Fed, are now seriously contemplating following their examples. So just what are these central bank digital currencies supposed to accomplish? The explanations run the gamut. They are supposedly, according to some, a substitute for paper cash. That being less anonymous would also be less useful in the underground economy. Others say that they're a device that could make it easier for central banks to combat recessions by using negative interest rates. Yet a third argument says that there are means for banking the unbanked, which, who still make up a, a significant percentage of the US population. And there's finally uh, the argument that these digital currencies can serve to enhance or to protect national currencies' international status, particularly by making sure that uh, we don't fall behind China, for example, uh, in uh, maintaining the US dollar's international prominence. Well, questions concerning the central bank, uh, the advantages, potential advantages of central bank digital currency have as their counterparts the question, what can these currencies accomplish that private digital currencies cannot? Or, alternatively, what roles should central banks on one hand and private sector entrepreneurs on the other play in making the most out of digital currency technology? To address these and related questions, we, have, we are honored to have with us today two eminently qualified experts. Chris Giancarlo is the former chair of the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, a founder of the Digital Dollar Project dedicated to considering the merits of a US central bank digital currency, and the author of a just published memoir, CryptoDad, The Fight for the Future of Money. Dante Desparte, is Chief Strategy Officer and Head of Global Policy for Circle, 
one of the world's leading digital financial services firms, and the source of USD coin, which is one of the world's most important stable coins. Prior to joining Circle, Dante was a founding executive of Facebook's Libra Association, or perhaps I should now say Meta's Diem Association. He's also a member of the World Economic Forum's Digital Currency Governance Forum. Ladies and gentlemen, please give a warm welcome to our speakers. Chris, Dante. Before I uh, sit down with our distinguished guests, a couple quick words of housekeeping. Our discussion will run about 40 to 45 minutes, after which we'll be taking questions and answers from both live and virtual participants. If you're reporting our proceedings on social media, kindly use the hashtag PoundCatoEcon. Well, it's nice to be here with both of you. I'm looking forward to this discussion very much. I'm, uh, I'm going to start with a very general question uh, to each of you. I, I'll start with Chris, just because he's closest to me, and ask uh, what, uh, what exactly does the phrase digital currency mean to you? There are so many definitions out there. Um, running from stable coins to digital, or rather, uh, personal retail account balances for individuals at the central bank. Uh, but what do you think of when you think of digital currency? Or, or, and, and what do you think is the most important form of digital currency, which is not quite the same question? No, it's not the same question. Uh, I, I think I mean most of the above of what you just described. In, in, in my book, I do a very simple sort of rundown of money. And I say that there's one form of money that goes back to the myths of humans, human, humanity's development, and that's tokenized money, whether in the form of shells or beads or wampum or, or Roman coins or Chinese paper money. Tokenized money is distinguished by one major characteristic, and that is its validity is established by the thing itself, the token itself. Is it the right shell or bead? Is that really Caesar's head on the coin? Is that the right paper money? Our own dollars today, is that a $10 bill for real? Um, there's no need to establish anybody's identity, where they live, where they bank, any other information. You just need to look to the token itself. And that served humanity for most of human history until its one major shortcoming was uncovered. Its major shortcoming is it's a local instrument. The further you get away from its area of acceptance, the less valuable it is. Those, those, those um, uh, Dutch guilders that worked very well in Amsterdam suddenly wouldn't work in Venice if you were a merchant going there to trade. And so a new form of money was developed in the late medieval, early Renaissance period, and that was an account-based money, banknotes. Let's take those Dutch guilders, put it in the Bank of Amsterdam's basement in their vault, and they'll give you a banknote, which will allow you to go to Venice and trade there. And that system is proliferated. 90% of the money in circulation today is basically bank account-based systems. But what we've discovered is that system has certain shortcomings. And actually, those shortcomings are quite significant. It requires identity. You cannot use that system if you not, do not have identity. 
in a world of eight plus billion people, over a billion and a half do not have identity and are excluded from that system. In our own population, as you mentioned in your remarks, a certain percentage of our population are excluded from the system and identity is a key feature. There's two other shortcomings. It's slow. Moving money around the world in the account-based system is slow. Why? Because you need to identify all the, establish all that identity. And secondly, it's expensive to move money around it. So shortcomings of our forms of money, whether it's token, local, or whether it's um, bank-based, it's exclusive. Thank you. It's, it's exclusive, it's slow, and it's costly. So when I think about digital money, I think about a new technology that allows us to address all those shortcomings. No longer local, no longer exclusive, because it doesn't require identity, because it's token-based. It's, it's fast, and it's not expensive to move around the world. It takes advantage of a new wave of the internet that allows us to do to money what we've done to photography, what we've done to information, and that is make it borderless, make it fast, make it non-exclusive, make it much more inclusive and much lower cost. Thank you, Chris. Go ahead. Well, so, so yeah, and, so, uh, you know, th thank you, Chris, and, and great to share a stage with, uh, with George and with you as well at Cato. Um, so to answer the question, if you, let me start with what are some of the limitations, right, of physical cash. And, and to those in the United States, the experience of physical cash is you see on it the words emblazoned in God we trust. And yet people's banking needs don't take bank holidays. We live in a society with an always-on internet economy. And when then you flash back to the onset of COVID-19, then you saw the limitations of what Chris described as a very local experience with money. But you also saw in Chris's remarks this reality that most of the money that we would construe as value added on the planet is actually privately issued. And so when you think about then what is the innovation of privately issued digital currencies, often referred to as stable coins, and we should double click on that term of art because it's fraught, not all stable coins are created equal. But the, the, the intention of a stable coin, like USDC, is to reach the closest approximation of a dollar possible in terms of price certainty, in terms of importing the fundamental trust, and importing the um, monetary policy of the United States, but then empowering that dollar with the power of the internet. And if you think about the innovation called cash today, by today's regulatory standards, it's not likely that that innovation would be approved by the same yardstick in which regulators and policymakers are looking at innovations on blockchain-based financial services. Cash is a haven for criminal activity, it's opaque, it's backward looking, and in the context of a public health emergency, it's a vector for spreading disease. So much so that some countries actually physically resorted to laundering their cash. And so then what is the stablecoin innovation and what has Circle done? We've tried to build inside the perimeter of regulatory and banking supervision expectations in the United States, and then to create an internet native tokenized form of money that in fact follows exactly the same paradigm of innovation that Chris has outlined. Since the very beginning of you know, numismatic inventions in history, the same paradigm is holding true. And ultimately, trust in these instruments similarly accrues over time. Um, so that, that's, that's how I would describe what is a digital currency. Everything Chris mentioned, plus the indictment of what some of these limitations are with physical cash as it exists today. Dante said that uh, uh, not all st stable coins are created equal. Some are more equal than others, <laughs> as the old phrase goes. Well, your answers to, to, to that first question uh, 
prompt, uh, oh, about half a dozen other questions. I'm not sure which to begin with, but I'll start with this. And this also could be directed at either of you, or both of you. Um, you seem to be uh, seeing digital currency primarily as a substitute for cash. That's the closest thing to it today. Uh, Federal Reserve notes, coins as well, of course. Uh, but, but, and it's an important proviso, more easily moved around and moved around globally. Mm -hmm. But with the similar, uh, with the similar feature of not requiring that the person be uh, have an identity, as you said, and have, yeah, doesn't have to have a bank account and all that. The two questions that come that that brings to mind are: first, do you see no role at all for old-fashioned paper currency in your digital di digitized currency worlds of the future? Do you see any role for paper currency? Would we continue to have the stuff? Uh, are there people who need it, uh, despite the innovations you're uh, talking about? That's one question. And I'll pile on a second one. Uh, what the heck does this have to do with central bank digital currency? And the reason that's a question, of course, is because at least so far here in the United States, the discussion has mainly been about accounts, private accounts at the Fed, right. and not about tokenized money. So that's two questions. I apologize in advance for asking more than one. Chris, go ahead. Yeah, so, so, uh, would you like me to go first, or would you like Dante to, to go first? Oh, you go ahead. Okay, okay, great. So, so, You're close. <laughs> so first of all, I think the mistake is to think about digital money only in the realm of payments. I think it's much, much bigger than that. I think what China's doing with the digital yuan, their ambition goes much beyond payments. It's to actually use a central bank digital currency as an operating system for a fully networked, integrated digital economy. You know, we have today a networked information system. You can go on the same laptop from a YouTube video to a speech, George, that you've written to, a book you've written to, other information seamlessly. And yet in our financial economy, if you want to trade a share of Microsoft, you go to one broker. If you want to put a hedge on an oil trade, you work for another one. If you want to do a commercial loan transaction, you're in a separate silo, silo, silo. They view the opportunity of digital currency as to be an operating system for a completely integrated digital economy. And in the United States, as you note, George, we aren't even beginning to address that big opportunity that others see on the horizon. To your question about uh, paper money, because I fundamentally do not trust either governments or big technology companies with our economic data, I think that we need to keep paper money as long as we can until the purveyors of digital currency, whether they be sovereign or non-sovereign, can establish sufficient trust in the sanctity, not just of our information, but that, there are, uh, that our financial transactions are not censored, whether that be by sovereigns or technology companies. And so I hope paper money sticks around for a long time. However, I think once central banks develop functioning money, they will move to get rid of paper transactions because the degree of control they have over digital money will be so overwhelming they'll want to squeeze that last vestige of, of free economic activity out. So, uh, and you're already seeing it. Sweden is moving away from digital money. China will move away from, from I'm sorry, from cash fiat money. China will move away from cash fiat as their own digital currency systems are successful. 
Yeah, and, and leave it to, oh, you don't need it? Okay, great, perfect. In that case, I'm a free agent. Um, <laughs> well, I was gonna say, leave it, leave it to a free market digital currency entrepreneur to sit here and tell you, actually, it would be a pretty bad thing if the world became cashless, right? And the reason I say that is if you think about the aim should be to have omni-channel payments and money movement sort of optionality in an economy. A, a very competitive 21st century economy can move money around when the lights are off, for which it's pretty good to have cash and travel around the United States today and you, you experience some vendors choose not to accept any other form of payment but a digital payment or a contactless payment. That is one of those insidious aspects of financial exclusion of the very technologies that could actually move the needle and make payments more inclusive and lower fundamental costs. So I'm a proponent of payment systems and money movement optionality in all of its forms, including cash. But then it gets to the question of how do you do it in a manner that preserves to the right of lawful the universal use of money? If, it, if it's first a fundamental right and if it's a public good, then how do we ensure the use of money to the right of lawful in, in all of its forms is as free as possible, as privacy preserving as possible. And then you, you have this opportunity to penalize a bad actor in the system as opposed to penalizing everybody in the system. And if you think about that standard, the way we operate today with the presumption of the burden of proof is on you, Chris and I, to prove who we are to get access to a basic bank account and then to expose the rest of our, for the rest of our natural lives, our personally identifiable information to single source of failure, honeypot databases like Equifax as a precondition to being banked, that's a pretty insidious proposition if you ask me. And so I think the, the, this trade-off of inclusion, privacy, infrastructure, and how cash can also exist in digital form without an air gap between the central bank and the public sector and private issuers and private operators, I think the tendency to, to risk too much censorship and to risk too much privacy erosion and potential deplatforming of people from their money is just too high. And for this to be really evergreen and novel, you have to keep that air gap in place between the central bank and how money moves. Absolutely. So, so we all agree that the Fed, it's okay for them to stay in the paper currency business. Yes. We agree on this. Okay. Uh, uh, but uh, what about private Fed accounts? Those aren't tokenized, of course, so they, they lack, uh, Chris, uh, some of the features that you see as the most important uh, ones uh, for digital currencies. Uh, so what, what do they add? Do they, have a, do, do they have a capacity that these other media don't to accomplish any of those goals we were talking about that I listed before, like banking the unbanked? Let me ask Dante here, uh, who's seeing things from the uh, point of view of a private entrepreneur, what, uh, what is the advantage of having the Fed open its uh, books to ordinary people, or is there none? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think the way my, my latest analogy in describing what I would hope is the desired outcome of the US and frankly Western policy approach to central bank digital currencies. Something like 90% of the world's central banks are either in operation or in abstraction and theory around what does it mean to digitize their national currency. My hope is in the same way that the FAA does not build aircraft engines and fly aircraft, but the FAA designates safe operation within the airspace and then the competitive environment now exists 
at different altitudes for different types of planes. I think we want the same posture for the future of money and payments. Is, is the central banks and other prudential and other regulatory authorities to designate what it looks like to have that safe innovation and safe airspace, and then allow free market and private sector activities to take root in that domain. That would create the greatest degree of optionality, the greatest degree of competition, and also acknowledge, frankly, that the extensibility of the dollar today in so many ways rides on private sector innovation or consortium rails. Um, if you think of every medium of exchange that is cross-border, uh, from payment networks to credit card companies to SWIFT to ACH and everything in between, the sum of all of those parts is what has allowed the dollar to reign supreme as a global currency. And the second you start to introduce a direct central bank tokenized or liability-based model, you're not only blunting competition in the two-tiered banking system domestically, you're also raising the specter that this becomes an international instrument. And then what is your obligation vis-a-vis -vis users of a dollar that's tokenized all over the world? Do they have accounts with the Fed or not? And things like this. So I think many of the policy questions have never been asked. And if they have, they've not really been debated to sufficiency. What they're looking at instead is the a high throughput transactional structure around retail payments as a domestic innovation. But I would much rather see an air gap by design that preserves economic competitiveness and a rules-based zone for innovation. Chris, I, I see you nodding, and that's always a good thing. Uh, <laughs> but uh, what about the argument that, uh, that since China has done it, especially since China has done it, uh, that if uh, the Fed doesn't create its own digital currency, even if it's just a Fed accounts, not anything more technically advanced than that, that, uh, that the dollar is going to be somehow in trouble. What do you uh, think of that? So first of all, I don't think the proposals for Fed accounts are actually part of the digital future of money. I, I think they, they, they co-opted the phrase digital dollar to, att to attach to something that is really goes back to 19th century German postal banking mm -hmm. that attracts, I think, a number of people uh, here in the U.S., I, I think it's kind of a ret, uh, retrograde step. I actually, I, I, I'm not supportive of, uh, of Fed banking. I think it has nothing to do with the digital future of money, um, uh, and I think that would that would distract us um, from creating, I think, a, a modernized digital um, financial system. I, I think, as, as Dante mentioned, I, I think we will have a, a, a federal sovereign digital currency within a decade. The, the attractiveness of digital money to sovereign governments is just too attractive. It's too overwhelming. And th I talk about this in my book. There's, it, it, whether it's the data capture, whether it's the financial system modernization, whether it's the ability to do greater financial inclusion, whether it's the precision monetary policy implementation, whether it's the threat of private stable coins that threaten uh, government and and, 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 and and government protected banks from a legacy PL enhancer in the form of payments, uh, whether it is uh, geopolitical power projection, economic power projection as China sees it, or whether it, it and this is what I think is the most important issue, so what values are going to con go from an, an analog form of money that we have today to a digital form of money in the future. Whether for any one of those reasons, I think every major sovereign government is going to establish, every major economy is going to develop a sovereign digital currency. It's my hope that they don't do it to the suppression of private efforts, 
because whether it's big government or big tech, all of our, pri all of our economic privacy is at risk. Governments do not hesitate to either censor themselves or get big tech to censor activities. We see it today with, mm. with views expressed on Facebook being censored, with, with, with YouTube videos being censored. And so whether it's the government getting big techs who issue dollar, uh, a, a non-sovereign crypto forms of money or governments themselves, I think the, the, both the potential of this innovation is enormous and could bring great good, greater financial inclusion, greater efficiency, lower costs, greater ability to use our money for good, but also tremendous risks to our privacy and censorship. And so one of the reasons you mentioned in, in the introduction that I formed the Digital Dollar Foundation, because as I say in my book, I think money is too important to be left to the central bankers. I think the private sector has got as much say in what a digital dollar looks like, as does the government. And they need to speak up now and make sure the values that got us here, values of free markets, of free enterprise, of ability to have economic privacy in our, in our existing forms of money are in the money that our children are going to use in the future, which I have every confidence is going to be digital because the next generation wants it to be so. Let's talk about the uh, cohabitation of uh, of the central bank digital currency, which we can take to mean the real thing, the real McCoy for the purpose of our discussion, uh, and the private market alternatives. Uh, and I have a number of questions about that. Uh, of course, uh, how these things can coexist depends on a number of factors. It depends on how strict the regulatory regime is for the private alternatives. It depends on the central bank's resort to subsidies, which is something that can make life difficult as well for the private option. So I want to talk about both. Let's start with the, the Treasury report on stable coins, which uh, uh, presented a very, very cursory overview of the way they're thinking in, in Washington now about regulating stable coins. Uh, Dante, <laughs> I'll let you start on this. What do you think about that as a foundation for making the most out of both private sector and potential Federal Reserve contributions to digital currencies future? Yeah, I, I mean, I think broadly, Chris and I will agree that there is a path in which coexistence is the right end game, lest the central bank kill two-tier banking and kill companies like PayPal and Stripe and payments companies, right? So, so I do think, irrespective of how long it takes, and I do think it'll take quite a long time before you see real Western CBDCs sort of in broad circulation and let alone cross-border circulation, that, that the advent of privately issued digital currencies like USDC and the innovation circle are supporting um, is the best proxy for what that experiment actually looks like at scale. And so in the president's working group report, yesterday's news, um, obviously there are, there are a number of points that we wholeheartedly agree with, right? The concept that there should be really harmonized prudential standards on the assets that underpin a stable coin. This is something we have been at the cutting edge of well before there was even a convening of the president's working group, the notion that this industry should be well regulated, that this industry should care about financial inclusion, financial integrity, and responsible financial innovation. I think these three pillars underpin everything we've done as a company. 
and frankly, the prudential standards of what is a appropriate, widely available liquid instrument that you could use that references a dollar and that addresses the question that early crypto projects have faced of buyer's and spender's remorse, right? Hypervolatility and the, the, the volatility of these assets really in the early days negated any gain as a spending instrument. So the breakthrough of a stablecoin innovation in its purest form is meant to uh, as closely approximate the reference asset as possible. What is then the next line of inquiry, and I think this is really important, is then where's the money, right? Where is, you know, where are the assets that underpin uh, a stablecoin? How do regulators and public authorities have confidence that what you say is there is in fact there? And that too is a paradigm in which we think We've been good operators as a company in, in sort of leading the charge and providing things like public attestations uh, from reputable accounting firms, not when you're at the knife edge of public inquiry, but as a, just a standard of building trust. Trust in currency accrues, um, whether it's publicly issued or privately issued, all of this is about trust. Um, so we think a lot of what the PWG's report are calling for are you know, guidelines that we could subscribe to and that we very much welcome. My concern, however, and it's a broader concern about the state of play of private sector innovation, and to Chris's point earlier, about the acknowledgement that so much about how money moves around the world is really broadly competitive. We have companies and, and firms and whole countries competing, not even asking for permission, at, a, at, at an industry of moving money onto public blockchains or on the internet. Um, are already launching at scale. Chinese mobile money platforms can process over $60 trillion a year, and many of the very innovations that we would like to see in the free market here in the United States are barely at the starting line. So, so I do think the jeopardy of trying to pigeonhole all of these innovations inside a series of rules that were born in the last century, designed to compete in this century, and designed to be enduring for the next 100 years, are missing that connectivity. So that's my, that's my concern. Let me let Chris uh, elaborate on that, because we were talking a little bit earlier about this, and I, I was remarking to Chris that uh, the report seems extremely conservative, uh, and uh, to that extent, uh, uh, not necessarily friendly to future innovation. Chris, what is your uh, reaction? Oh, yeah, so I, I was very disappointed. I haven't studied it because I was prepared for a Senate testimony today. So I've skimmed it. So with that caveat, and I do really want to read it thoroughly, the, the big reaction I had was it was regulators um, speaking to the private sector and speaking to Congress saying, you've all got work to do, um, but we don't have any work to do. Our, our, our interpretation of our 90-year-old legacy statutes is just fine, it's apt, nothing needs to be done on our end, we don't need to look in the mirror at all, we don't need to adapt, we don't need to give any breathing room to this innovation, it needs to meet our requirements as they are today, and oh, by the way, if you want anything changed, Congress has got to step in. I, I found that to be a very wooden, a very uh, regulatory-centric approach, and I was disappointed that there was not somebody in the administration that said, wait a minute, what's the national interest here? Not what the regulatory interest, what's the national, is there a national interest in innovation? Then, then where is it? it? It actually opens up with a line about saying, this innovation could create greater financial inclusion, lower cost, uh, 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 take out rent seeking, et cetera, et cetera. And then nowhere in the report is there any, that I could find, any responsibility on the regulators to to, to further any of that 
um, that innovation. And you know, one of the things we try to do at the CFTC is look ourselves in the mirror and say, well, where are our regs um, not facilitating innovation? And we, we made some adjustments, we made changes, we created something called Lab CFTC to work with innovators. There was none of that in this report. There was no call on regulatory agencies to any way accommodate this, to, to give some leeway. And you know, without any room to breathe, all we're going to do really is, is, is beat down the best ideas and, and create sort of a, a siloed, um, cons uh, f force a consensus view and not the creative innovation of, of, a, of a give and take of ideas. And it's so disappointing. You know, we, we dominated the first wave of the internet, the internet of information. And so many benefits came to the US economy as a result. For some reason, we sat out the second wave, the internet of things. You know, we do not dominate in 5G technology. China and some firms in, in Europe do. For some reason, the argument went around that that's just about a better TV picture. Well, 5G technology is what's powering all this ability of devices to talk to devices. Well, the third wave of the internet is on us now, the internet of value, the ability to move money around the globe, to use um, uh, technology to, in a sense, empower a financial system. And we're, we seem to be kind of missing this. We seem to be missing, this is more, and I, with great respect, with what you're building, which is very important, but it's even bigger than yeah. what you're building. It's even bigger than payments. We have a financial system that was pretty much built in the 20th century. It's built on a, an account basis. If you don't have an account, you basically can't use it. If you don't have identity, you can't get an account. We can do so much better, and yet we seem to be missing the boat. And I thought that it was a big miss last night. I, th I thought the report was it just was just underestimating both the opportunity and the challenge. Let me let me uh, mention. I also just skimmed the report. I know Dante is ready. To I read it. <laughs> he gets a gold star for doing his homework. Uh, but uh, I did skim it as well. And one thing that struck me was uh, a statement there. Uh, that uh, that uh, their opinion was that the only firms that should be allowed to issue stable coins are ones that are insured depository institutions, which for most of us and for all practical purposes means ordinary commercial banks. And, and uh, it seemed to me that this is leaving a lot of play potential players out. Now, I want to address the question of risk, of course, which, uh, but um, I wanted to hear especially Dante's reaction to that. And I, I think uh, I'm not uh, disclosing anything that's not public by saying that Circle is getting, applying for a, a full-fledged banking license. So this won't keep them out of the running. Yeah. But what do you think given that, or despite that, or because of that, about this? Yeah, I, I mean, you're right in that Circle has already, well before the PWG issued its, its pronouncements and the Papal Conclave ceased to uh, convene, okay. uh, that, that we intended to become a, a commercial bank for reasons that have nothing to do with the prudential treatment of stablecoin reserves. Because actually, I would argue, there's some good conduct and good aspects of our structure that we could import into the two-tiered banking system because it's not a fractional reserve model. We're not taking your deposit, your dollar, Chris, and then going to the casino with 90 cents on your dollar and, and, and you know, 
creating fractional reserves and creating leverage, right? This is a fully reserved model. For every USDC token in circulation, there's a corresponding dollar and other highly liquid assets, basically treasuries, cash, and cash equivalents in the care, custody, and control of the US regulated banking system. So we have to take some care that the indictment of a structure like ours is fundamentally an indictment of our state money transmission regulators, which have overseen regulations and innovations and breakthroughs like, I don't know, PayPal and a whole host of globally competitive companies. We're on the same footing as they are. So we have to embrace that in the absence of federal regulatory standards on competitiveness, the states are the labs in which great innovations take place. That's important, and we continue to embrace that, that model. But well before the PWG's report was issued, this intention of becoming a bank, in our view, was not a function of stablecoin prudential management of reserves. We already felt that we were a leader in that domain, and we were, we were responding to market developments and market trust because our digital currency went from $4 billion in January to over $33 billion today and counting, filling a void in the world of what you could not do with money if it existed on an open internet, an internet of value. I completely subscribe to everything you said. The stakes are enormous. Um, and so in our view, the two-tiered banking system can actually learn quite a lot of what would you do if you couldn't fractionalize your reserves. How do you then provide a model of money and the movement of money without creating leverage? Having said all of that, we would of course embrace engagement with the FDIC and having an insured model for Circle, but I, I do have concerns that this approach will only pigeonhole a novel industry into only bank-like structures, and while it may be advantageous to our company, over the long haul, it might be disadvantageous to the state of play and economic competitiveness in the U.S. Yeah, and the same legacy banking system that has actually held back innovation here in the United States, you know, our, our payment system is even slower than Europe's. So the same legacy banking system has basically been given assist with this letter to say, pretty much, you guys don't have to change. Others have to meet, come into your world. You don't have to go into theirs. And it's kind of an assist to the legacy system that, quite frankly, hasn't really earned that kind of support because they've held back innovation. Well, let's talk about risk, though. Uh, the arguments, and we hear these arguments both from regulators and from the uh, incumbents in the banking industry, uh, uh, is that the argument is that uh, stable coins could be very risky, and therefore their issuers should be uh, subject to all the same regulatory requirements as ordinary commercial banks. This is a very commonly repeated mm. view, and it seems to be the view that's now embraced uh, in the uh, report. Uh, but what about that? Uh, in particular, uh, how unsafe are stable coins? And let's not just talk about the ones that we might consider best. I know which one that is from Dante's point of view, <laughs> but uh, uh, let's talk about the controversial ones like Tether, do these things pose a great threat to financial stability? And if so, uh, how come? And is it necessary really to impose all the same regulations that we impose on ordinary banks to contain that threat? That's a big question. I know Chris So, so you know, I'll tell you how I think about risk. Uh, risk cannot be extinguished. Risk can just be moved. You know, risk is like a giant balloon. You squeeze it here, you get tension over there. You squeeze it there, you get tension over here. So you can have a situation where in seeking to de-risk this new innovation, we're actually putting ourselves at risk of missing the innovation. I think in some cases, we can hold ourselves back. We can become static in a rapidly changing world because we're afraid of short-term risk 
and we actually put ourselves at risk of our economic competitors moving faster. Take China's economy today, the world's fastest growing. If they're successful in creating a digital currency that serves as an operating system to reduce the silo effect and create uh, lower latency and lower cost, you could take the world's fastest growing economy and send it into hyperdrive while we're still here figuring out whether we should have 19th century Fed accounts. So, so there's, you know, risk is a, is a, is a, is a, is a what's the old song? It's a, it's a many splendored thing. I mean, there's, there's, there's short-term risk, there's long-term risk. We've got to be careful of becoming a backwater risk. And um, uh, to your second co point, I am worried about, I, I said, Dante used the phrase, uh, not all stable coins are created equal. And I say, well, some, some are more equal than others, equal to what they say they are. Uh, I'm, I am worried about, and I won't mention names, I am worried about a blow up at, at one stable coin or another that then becomes a pretext for certain regulators to say, see, I told you so, the whole thing mm. is crooked, the whole thing is filled with fraud, and therefore we need to clamp down on the whole innovation. You know, it often happens in new innovations that you have some that get caught out, some get it wrong, some are outright fraudulent. That doesn't condemn, you know, one bad apple doesn't condemn the whole bunch, but I'm afraid that in the world we've got right now with a small C group of regulators are in a sense looking to gain complete control, mastery, and, and, and they put it risk reduction over a new innovation, they'll find one bad apple to condemn the whole bunch, and we will then create the risk of becoming an innovation backwater in the third wave of the internet and allowing our economic competitors to power their economy much more efficiently, much more faster, and much more effectively, and not just for domestic uses. The digital yuan has got bigger uses than just uh, China it, it, and, it, and it, the conveniences that come with it, the ability to plug into their system at the cost of economic privacy may be overpowering for a lot of their client states on their Belt and Road Initiative. So I think we've got risk of becoming a backwater if, we, if, we, if we're so risk adverse in the short term. Risk happens to be one of the sort of my favorite topics, but the, um, I have a counter narrative out there. So I wrote a piece in uh, Project Syndicate basically producing a counter-narrative that the US may not be losing the digital currency space race. So Chris and I both completely agree, the stakes are global, the stakes are massive, the stakes are really big, but my view is that I don't necessarily subscribe to the view that we're losing the digital currency space race. We could lose it, and one of the reasons why I don't think we're losing it is because if you think about the totality of the stable coins that are in circulation and any that has reached anything close to real market utility or market dominance, notwithstanding the fact that some would be woefully underfunded or fail a run proof, right, which is part of what the prudential regulators care about, is that all of the ones that are really successful reference the dollar, right? Some of us put the dollars in the US banking system. So if you don't like USDC, you don't like US banking system. And you don't like the way the US banking system is regulated. Others are putting those dollars offshore to the extent they're even dollars. But nonetheless, the reference asset is the dollar for every stable coin that is useful. And then what is the experiment we're really conducting? The experiment we're conducting is that to launch a central bank digital currency that is retail and that works for you and I, you have to pick a point in time technology stack. Guess what? Moore's law is not standing still. These, whether you're using blockchain or using any other technology standard, it is advancing quite rapidly. And I think part of the risk you're keeping in the free market while preserving monetary policy and oversight in the public domain, as it should be, 
is the risk that this technology obsolescence remains a free market activity and the R&D is not taxpayer born. I think that's important. That's happening at scale. In, our, in USDC's case, we've processed nearly $2 trillion in cumulative on-chain transactions. It's a system that exists across many open standards. And so really what we're really competing for is not who can build a better digital dollar, it's who can tear down the, the, the high walls of today's walled garden payment systems. That's the area where we're introducing the most competition. And I think that's massively important for geopolitical reasons, competitiveness reasons, domestic and global payments reasons. That's the real competition at scale. I, I agree with Dante. If you take all of the innovation going on in, in digital currency between the private sector here in the United States and the public sector, we're not losing the race. But that assumes that they'll work together. That assumes that's that right. the private sector and the public sector will cooperate. And what I'm worried about with statements as that came out last night is it doesn't show an embracing of this innovation. It shows a, 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 an aversion, to, you know, a risk-based aversion control mm -hmm. approach. And, and I think we've got, there's got to be somewhere a recognition of a public policy and allowing innovation to innovate. What made the first wave of the internet so successful was the federal government's do-no-harm approach that said, Let's give this room to breathe. Let's see what comes out of this. Let's not try to kill, strangle the baby in the crib. Let's give it some room to grow and see what happens. That's not what I read in that statement. It was not a do no harm approach in that statement last night. And so my worry is we, got, we do have great innovation going on here. And actually, we were ahead in the early, early days of 5G, mm. but we didn't maintain that lead. So my worry is that we don't maintain this. Well, and one quick interjection here. I think one of the reasons, I think personally in many cases, Prudential risk is being framed as the basis for bursting the bubble of a lot of stablecoin innovations when the real motivation has to do with financial integrity and financial crime compliance. And that unfortunately, if you look at the word cloud of what the word crypto, the words produced over the minds of its proponents, you would hear words like self-sovereignty and democratization and empowerment and competition. But in the minds of its opponents, you would see exactly the opposite set of words. And, and I do think it's a space, not unlike the internet before it, that needs a lot of education, a lot of engagement, and a lot of myth-busting. Yeah. Conflating crypto with the rise of ransomware, for example, is a myth. Email is a faster vector for ransomware attacks, but we, we're not calling for banning email. Um, and so I, I do think there's a, a heck of a lot more work to be done, and perhaps here at the Cato Institute, you could continue to be a bastion of good sense around educating people and policymakers about what are the stakes. And George, if I could actually... We've got to let the audience. Oh, we do. Of course we do. <laughs> we, we do. We're a little bit past our time and uh, uh, for that, so we do have a, almost 15 minutes for question and answer for the audience, uh, from the audience. And of course, uh, we're taking questions both from our online uh, audience and from all of you. Uh, if uh, if uh, I call on any of you for uh, a question, please uh, come up to the microphone and uh, announce uh, yourself, tell us who you are, and, and then uh, go ahead and ask your question. And I'll be recognizing also some questions from uh, 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 some of our uh, staff uh, who are in contact with our online listeners. So, oh, and uh, once again, I want to remind everybody to, uh, if you're tweeting or otherwise uh, reporting on this event, to, on social media to use the hashtag uh, found Cato econ. Thanks. So we have a question right back here. Yes, the gentleman. 
And then if you have uh, someone in particular, Chris or Dante, you want to direct the question to, please do. Yeah, Adrian uh, Churgel, retired, please to Dante. Can we expect you to do a, uh, let's say, SDR-denominated uh, stable coin? Yeah, it, it's, it's a great question. So the original version of the Libra project, MetaDM, that George rebranded, was designed to be a basket-backed stablecoin that would reference underlying assets, um, that would produce a global neutral payment instrument that would work at scale, that replicated the SDR. At Circle, we have no such ambition. Uh, we do anticipate over time launching other stablecoins and supporting other stablecoins and other fiat-backed stablecoins, pound sterling, euro, et cetera. But I, I think that idea of a composite structure really should and, and ought to fall under international oversight, IMF, World Bank oversight for it to exist. So in our view, good idea, but, but you know, maybe ahead of its time. And to that point, uh, the former governor of the Bank of England, Mark Carney, actually proposed a similar global current stable, uh, uh, digital currency that would be based on a basket of currencies. And he actually posited it as an alternative going forward to the US dollar's dominance as a reserve currency. Question from on, online. So earlier, Chris, you had mentioned that the idea of what happens if something becomes too big and crashes and becomes the, uh, oh, look, what happened? So one of our anonymous commenters on Slido asks, we've seen a lot of cases where cryptocurrencies, digital currencies, and stable coins have been referred to as wildcats, such as the, the myth from the past, is there any worry that, like the past, there will be a risk of over-regulation which creates systemic risks in this space? Yeah. So um, something that I, I, I really come to believe is the myth of qu quantity of regulation being either, either a good or bad thing. It, it's, it, you know, the financial crisis wasn't caused by too little regulation. It wouldn't have been solved if there was more regulation. Quantity of regulation is irrelevant. It's quality of regulation. Is the regulation appropriate to achieve the public policy seeking to be achieved? So often, I found in my experience that regulations are on the books that actually didn't achieve what they were designed to do. They achieved all kinds of adverse things. So the real question is, are we willing now to first off, first principles, what is our public policy as a nation with regard to this new innovation? Investor protection presumably is important, but so is deep and orderly liquid markets. One of the reasons the dollar is so strong is because most of the world's major commodities are priced in dollars because our markets are the deepest, most liquid, overseen by a great regulator, the CFTC. Mm. So wouldn't it be great if the price of most of these new cryptos, like Bitcoin or others, were priced here, as Bitcoin is increasingly is being priced here. We have a national interest, I believe, in deep and orderly liquid markets that set world standards. But what other national imperatives do we have? How about innovation? Do we want the innovation to take place on our shores? Do we want the world's engineers to continue to come to the United States to do this innovation? Or, or do we want to force them to go other? So we need to sit down, first principles, what are our national policy objectives, and then let's design a crypto regime, a regulatory regime, that achieves those objectives. Let's not sit back and say, 
we've got this finite landscape of regulators, and now we need to apportion. Okay, there's a little bit for you, SEC. We'll give a little to you, the CFTC. I mean, that's kind of what we're doing, but that's not the right way to do it. So it's not about uh, quantitative regulation. It's about quality, and is the regulation apt to achieve our national objectives? And I think what I didn't read in that paper was a, a national agenda setting. I would have much rather it started out by saying, uh, here's this administration's proposed national interests, and here's how we're going to achieve those national interests, as opposed to kind of what I read is, here's our regulatory alphabet soup structure, and, in, in, and who gets this, you get that, you get that, as if the regulatory structure comes first and, and the policy comes second. It's got to be policy first, and then we'll work out how we get the policy done. We have another question from the audience. Anyone? Uh, Nikhil, uh, Nikhil, he's uh, taking. Yeah, so uh, we have another question from the audience at home. Uh, Gary from Slido asks, if both public and private digital currencies are to coexist, do you imagine that this will necessitate a regulatory double standard? Well, I mean, the short answer, the short answer is no, and I, I am going to borrow Chris's concept that more regulation is not necessarily better. Uh, rather than having first principles. And, and I think a lot of them that are ultimately pigeonholing a lot of these innovations into areas that need more competition, if we all start looking alike, um, I think it's bad for innovation as much as it is bad for any group of people trying to compete. Um, so, so no, I don't think it creates a double standard. I think there is a pathway in the future. If we wanted to really win the digital currency space race, then the answer is not technological, it's all policy. For example, a liability-based approach where there are alternate pathways of having central bank custody or central bank trading windows being more equally available to payment systems operators, banks, and other innovators in the country, one step that has nothing to do with technology, it's just a development of, of you know, greater access to central bank uh, liabilities. The other, of course, is you know, imagine a world in which you could declare current high standard, you know, uh, privately issued digital currencies, confer them with digital legal tender status and start to create regulatory and legal certainty in the same way that the CFTC did with allowing, you know, one common regulator to regulate Bitcoin and, and uh, Ethereum, for example, as commodities in the U.S. That one move creates a market, a $2 trillion asset class starts to emerge. I think we, we're facing a similar conundrum with what should we do about these novel innovations, if we're going to do something about them, the more legal and regulatory certainty we can create, the better. So, um, you look at human history, money is one of those areas where there's both been um, government involvement and there's been private sector involvement. In fact, it's, it's one area where neither is, um, except for practically probably our current time, where one has completely excluded the other. Um, uh, you know, even during the Roman Empire, when the Roman coinage was dominant, you had other sovereigns existing in the empire, and you had barter systems, and you had others. So private development of money and government development of money have had an uneasy exist, coexistence throughout most human history. And in fact, there's a lot of mythology, even in our own American experience, about the period in, in, uh, prior to the creation of the Fed, about how both um, private issued money and government money, and, and George, you've done some great scholarship on, on this. Um, uh, there's no reason why what's existed throughout most of human history can't be in the future where you've got both 
functionally operating private systems. And I think there is a role for private citizenry to speak up and say, until you, the Fed, until you, DM, until you, uh, Circle, establish trust with us, we're not giving any of you all our business. And in my book, actually, I propose what I call a sort of a jigsaw puzzle approach to money. In other words, earn our trust. Show us that our information is private. Show us that you're not censoring our transaction. And we'll divvy up our financial transactions amongst all of you until that trust is established. I'd be really reluctant right now to sign on to a digital dollar, even though I've created the digital dollar project, that squeezes out what, what you're doing. Because I don't trust um, our government enough, the same government that's willing to censor or, or call for the censorship of ideas on social media is the same government that won't hesitate you know, a, a right-wing government would say you can't use digital money to, to uh, fund an abortion. Or a left-wing government would say you can't use it to um, buy ammunition. Or, you know, they won't hesitate to do that if they own, if I have a monopoly on money. And so I, I think a pluralistic system of the future might be the best defender of individual liberty and, and our individual rights. Um, and so I cheer on all developments. At the same time, I'm, I do believe most central banks will develop central bank digital currency. And so you know, our digital dollar project is meant to be a voice of the private sector to say, and we just published a set of privacy principles in the last two weeks. It's a way of saying, hey, we're watching. Money's too important to be left exclusively to central bankers. The private sector has a voice to play. And the more successful they are, and the more successful your competitors are, earning the trust of society, then your governments are going to have to take that into account. Any other questions? Any, anyone in the audience? Um, go ahead, Nick. So Roger on Slido asks, is it possible for the private and public sector to collaborate in the digital currency space? And what do you see as that being, what do you see the best course of action being for that collaboration? Well, if I could, just to Please. start, I mean, I, I do think it gets to the preamble that was missing in the President's Working Group report, which is the, the if this is in fact a digital currency space race, and I actually think it is, and I think the stakes are enormous, and hopefully we've laid out both the domestic and international implications, then the missing link is the call for an industrial policy in the United States on how a dollar can exist on the internet and how an open internet of value can also exist that enshrines first principles in this country, um, which is, I think, the missing link. And so in the same way that the actual space race started with leadership calling for, you know, by the end of this decade, we will put a person on the moon, we're missing that piece of the puzzle that starts to animate broader competition, broader regulation, and, and sort of broader cross-sector collaboration on what does really great and enduring look like. I think that's the missing piece of the puzzle. And so companies like ours and many developers in the space feel like they're working in the void of that. And so, so many of the actual goals are aligned with public policy. As a company, we care very deeply about financial inclusion. As a company, we care very deeply about promoting responsible financial services innovation and doing so in a manner that actually levels the playing field and creates the next series of unicorns. And they're not all in one postal code in Silicon Valley. And as a, as a company, we care very, very deeply about financial inclusion, uh, sorry, integrity and in protecting the financial system. Right? I think these technologies can do so exponentially better than opaque banking systems that ledger transactions 
on a ledger gathered, gathering dust in a drawer somewhere. Public blockchains record micropayments uh, with accounting fidelity that the whole world can see. This is a net gain in terms of financial crime compliance and combating illicit finance. And yet, to convince many policymakers and regulators that that vision actually needs national leadership as well is, is an uphill fight right now. So I think that preamble is missing in, in that report. I agree. Well, we are out of time. And uh, I'm sure we're not out of questions. <laughs> and, uh, 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 and, I, and this debate will continue for some time. At least I hope it does, because if they settle things too soon, I'm afraid it'll be settled rather badly. I want to thank our speakers uh, once again, Dante, Chris, for uh, a, a fantastic uh, discussion. I really, really enjoyed it. I'm sure the audience did. And I'd like to thank all of you once again for attending and also our online attendees. And now I'd like to invite all of you to uh, join us for lunch, which is upstairs, on the, uh, up the spiral staircases. And I also should uh, remind you or let you know that there are also bathrooms up there on your way to the lunchroom. So don't worry. Uh, go ahead on up, and you can stop on the way. And of course, uh, once we're seated, seated and eating, your masks naturally can come off, uh, uh, unless you know some tricks I don't. Uh, so uh, thanks, everybody, once again. Thank you all.